You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center um, for the debut of our sixth season here of Cyber Law and Business Report. Thank you for joining us. Please be seated. We've got a, a great show and we'll have another great season. And um, we, we appreciate your support over the years and we're going to just keep going. Um, normally, this is the part where I talk about broadcasting live from sunny Santa Monica here in the heart of Silicon Beach. But uh, we have had a visitor, and his name is El Nino. And uh, we have our second day of heavy rains here and much needed. Um, but as you, know, you can imagine, something like that is quite catastrophic for Californians who aren't used to it. But, so, but we will labor on. Um, I, but my voice is unaffected, and we will continue with the show. This is the show business town, after all. Um, but our guest today, we're really thrilled to have Rebecca Heacock Jones. Um, she's with Harvard's Berkman Center for Internet and Society, and uh, she's our third guest from the Berkman Center. We'll have her talk a little bit about what they done, but we've had their founder, um, Charlie Neeson, and it was founded in 1998. And But they have a, a special project that we're very interested in um, called the Internet Monitor. It's got a lot of attention, and she's going to be talking to us about that. And so, Rebecca, can you hear us? Yes. Thanks so much for having me, Bennett. Thank you. So um, we were talking just in the intro, just briefly, about the Berkman Center, and can you tell us a little bit about what it is? Yeah, so we started almost 20 years ago as just kind of a little shop at the Harvard Law School. The idea was to explore some of the new challenges and opportunities the Internet was posing to society and to law. And since then, we've grown into a a pretty sizable interdisciplinary effort. We have social scientists, economics, researchers, sociologists, uh, people who study Internet access, Internet freedom, kind of all pieces of the Internet all working together to build out uh, both sort of entrepreneurial efforts into the space to study, to record data, to share what we've learned. And it's actually moved out out from the law school to now part of the, the broader university. Yeah, that's correct. We're now university-wide. 
And and in terms of the staff, I mean, what percentage is of the staff are lawyers versus non-lawyers? I would say the non-lawyers are overtaking the lawyers. Um, we may have tipped that balance a few years ago. So I myself have no uh, legal background except for a single class I took in law school. And I think probably 20 or 25 of our other staff are in the same boat. That's great. Um, yeah. So it makes it an interesting environment for sure. Um, I'm sure the audience is cheering on. You know, you're you know, <laughs> conquering the lawyers. But um, so, what what attracted you to joining the Berkman Center? Um, so, I when I first heard about the Berkman Center, I was actually living in Kampala, Uganda, and I was ta- hanging out with a bunch of bloggers just in my free time. I was keeping a blog about what I was doing, kind of the travels I was taking, and. Uh, I read a blog post by Ethan Zuckerman, who was connected to the Berkman Center at the time, and who's one of the founders of Global Voices, which is an internet uh, sort of citizen media journalism kind of project. And uh, he was working at Berkman Center, kind of looking at how the internet can be used to connect different stories and different people across the inter- across the world, really. And that was pretty interesting to me because I was hearing a lot of things that, uh, from the bloggers I was spending time with that I wouldn't have necessarily been able to read not only in Ugandan papers, but also obviously in the New York Times, for example. Um, So that was the initial thing that drew me to the Berkman Center. And then as I went on to graduate school and studied sort of the role the internet plays in international development and freedom of expression, that Berkman was doing a lot of work in that area at the time. So it was a pretty natural fit. How did you end up in Uganda? Uh, Good question. I'm not 100% sure myself. I studied Russian (laughs) as an undergraduate um, and kind of for a long time thought I'd be spending the rest of my days deep in the bowels of a library studying Dostoevsky. Um, But I had a friend who went to Kenya when she graduated from college and then made her way over to Uganda and met some friends who were working in the area of post-conflict development, which was something that I was kind of interested in. So I went over to work with what was called the Global Youth Partnership for Africa. It's, it was at the time a DC-based organization that was bringing Ugandan youth and college students and American young people and college students together to talk about post-conflict development. So I headed over there first for a conference they were running, and then later spent a year there helping them run similar conferences. And and the post-conflict, I guess they they got involved somewhat in the um, Rwanda conflagration that um, happened in the late nineties. Is, is was that the conflict you were, you were involved in? Um, no, I was actually working with. Uh, sort of the Lord's Resistance Army child surgeons who were returning from the field, that sort of space. Um, But yeah, I think Uganda has seen more than its fair share of conflict over the past few decades, for sure. Yes, uh, starting from the Idi Amin era um, on forward. And so any event, but we're here to (laughs) to talk about a different topic. And and, uh, but we're here to talk about the Internet Monitor And so tell us a little bit about the origin of this program. Yeah, so the Internet Monitor started as an idea that started kicking around Berkman uh, maybe five or six years ago. And the goal was we were doing all of this amazing research, collecting all of this data. But then we were publishing each data set and each report a little bit in a silo. So we had all this amazing information, and it was useful kind of within its own subfield. But we weren't doing as much as we felt that we could to bring all of that information together and see what new insights could be gained by bringing together information about internet censorship with information about DDoS attacks and information about takedown requests and information about legal environments. We wanted to do more. And we also wanted to bring together not only information that we were collecting and generating, but also data that other organizations, both public and private, were also collecting and generating. 
Mm-hmm. And the first vision for Internet Monitor was like a big blinky LED screen that would show you kind of at a glance what was happening in any one place, in any one internet environment. Um, you know, whether that's internet access and infrastructure data, whether it's information about online content controls or internet activity. Um, we've since sort of migrated a little bit from the giant blinking screen idea, though actually with our new dashboard that came out in September, uh, you can do that yourself if you'd like. Right. But we've... Uh, We've expanded to both collecting that data and sharing interesting data visualizations, which we can talk about more when we talk about the dashboard. We also do a lot of research. We have a research series that shares information about new legal developments in the field, about other trends that are affecting Internet access, online content controls, online activity, those things I mentioned. Um, We've published an annual report for the last couple of years that are collections of essays by people within the Berkman Center orbit and then general sort of cyberspace research orbit about what they feel are the most important trends emerging in the space. We also have our online platform, which preceded our dashboard. And this is a more simple kind of at one shot glance that tells you a little bit about the internet environment in almost 100 different countries, looking mostly at internet access and infrastructure. So things like how fast are the speeds? How much does it cost? How many people are online? That sort of thing. So we have quite a bit of... um, different pieces going on and and that's something our, our listeners are familiar with we actually have regularly have um david belson from from akamai on yeah. this show to talk about you know akamai's um your quarterly state of the internet reports mm-hmm. and so you know that's that that's data we've talked about here on this show um you know being kind of very relevant you know for the snapshot you know, in terms of how are we doing on broadband access and speeds, but also Akamai has threat data as well. But I think you do you get that from Akamai, or you also I noticed that you get data from Symantec as well. Yeah, we pull data in from Akamai. We use data from Kaspersky Labs. We have data from GSMA Intelligence, which is a mobile industry organization. Mm-hmm. Um, Change.org. We just started partnering with. We're kind of trying to pull together both those. Um, regularly collected, systematic, sort of spreadsheet-y kinds of things that the average internet user might not be quite so willing to delve into uh, with some more contextual information like the change.org information, which looks at what people are actually doing once they're online, kind of the petitions they're signing or the search terms they're looking at. Or we're bringing in data from Media Cloud, which is a Berkman Center project that looks at kind of popular terms in online media in different countries over the last week. So kind of a broad spectrum of different kinds of data and different kinds of partners. Which and, and which I imagine you have a lot of researchers now find that to be a valuable tool. Yeah, that's our hope. We built the dashboard that came out in September to be as flexible as possible. We wanted to kind of give people a bunch of building blocks they could use in whatever way was most helpful to them. So the core audiences that we're seeing right now and that we're kind of working toward um, – in terms of future, building future features right now, our researchers, we already have a few people who are using the dashboard to put together background information for papers they're writing on new policy, that sort of thing. Journalists, you can actually embed individual widgets in other sites. So people are kind of coming in to see a piece of information they're looking for, and then they can take that data visualization out and use it in other spaces students, and then also people who work in policy, people who need to be able to put together a uh, what we think is a, a nice-looking, easy-to-understand kind of background slate of information about a particular country or set of countries that can help them as they're making decisions about where to take policy. 
Right. Now, as usual, we have um, information about um, this whole project and about our guest on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress. And, um, and, but included in that is a video um, by an, an intern explains the Internet Monitor. And, yes. and she actually walks through how to use it and what type of information may be found there. So if listeners may want to check that out, it's a, it's a useful kind of introduction to the Internet Monitor. And um, so I imagine that was someone who worked for you. Yeah, she actually uh, she worked in our communications team over the summer. Berkman has a summer internship program that brings together around 40 students each summer. And uh, she found the project interesting and kind of asked if she could run with it. And we were so excited when she decided that she wanted to make that video. I'm a big fan of it. And and so you've you've mentioned that you've come out with some reports. And um, some of your initial reports deal with um, using Twitter, for example, in Saudi Arabia and I believe China. Mm-hmm. And, and wh- why, why that? What, what, brought, what led you to focus on that? I think one of the driving questions behind Internet Monitor is, is to get at how the Internet is being used in society, how it might be changing society, how different actors in society might be using different aspects of the Internet as a tool to further their ends, whatever that might be. And one of the sort of hot topics right now is how people are using social media in politically repressive environments. So we've done quite a few different blogosphere studies, Twitter sphere studies at Berkman. And as part of Internet Monitor, we decided to focus in on Twitter. Um, we had sort of a nice confluence of researchers who had a deep interest and a lot of experience in both Saudi Arabia and in China, as well as a nice uh, long-standing partnership with John Kelly at Graphica, who does the actual Twitter data collection. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, coupled with our own interest in the answers to these questions about in China, sort of about how people are hopping over the Great Firewall and what right. is motivating them to get online and specifically to use Twitter, which is blocked in the country. Um, and then also our interest in Saudi Arabia was how are the, how is this platform, which is kind of unusually unblocked in Saudi Arabia, um, the country filters a lot of websites, but they don't as of yet filter Twitter. And so what does that mean? What does that look like to have this space that's relatively free? What are people doing uh, with their access to that space? And, and uh, just coincidentally, you know, six years ago at this time, I, I was in Asia meeting with a bunch of Chinese netizens oh, um, uh-huh. talking about just those questions of how they were – dealing with accessing the internet and, and getting information out and the government's response and fear mm-hmm. of the internet and fear and particularly not so much the internet as a as a, a large enterprise, but the, what was the mobile internet, the fact that the internet was in the, in people's pockets and mm-hmm. anyone at any time could do something um, that seemed to be what, what drove them. Yeah, and I think I think in China what we're seeing is that because the Internet is so heavily censored and because the Chinese government, I think, uh, would like to be able to keep tabs on what's happening, we're seeing the growth of a lot of sort of homegrown platforms and that have deep government insight. Um, for example, Weibo or other Chinese microblogging platforms, sort of these alternatives to what we might think of here in the States, like Twitter and Facebook are the first things that come to mind when you think mm-hmm. about social media here. But in China, that's not necessarily the case. People are using these 
platforms that have much deeper ties to the government that are much uh, more closely controlled and managed. And that's, I think, what drew us to the study of Twitter was the people who are using Twitter from China are people who've been motivated to go beyond what's sort of easily accessible, the first thing they're able to get their hands on. They have to kind of go through some hoops to actually get online on Twitter. And we wanted to know, what was that? Was it people who specifically were looking for political discourse or political conversation that they weren't able to have on these domestically hosted platforms? Um, that was kind of our thesis going into this study. Was this sort of a community of dissidents who knew that that the government was keeping tabs on them, who was nervous about what they might be posting and wanted to kind of have an alternate space to discuss? Or or was it a community, like a community that maybe wanted entertainment information or, you know, wanted quick access to Lady Gaga's Twitter account or Justin Bieber's Twitter account? Um, <laughs> and we, had, we found a little bit of both, both <laughs> to be yeah. honest. Yeah, um, which I think makes sense. Um, but we did, we found a substantial political crowd who actually, uh, use Twitter fairly publicly using their real names, putting their faces on their profile pictures, which we thought was one of the more interesting findings of that study. And yeah, and I, I recall, and it was an interesting uh, analysis and I'm trying to remember the, the blind dissident who escaped, um, in China and ended up, you know, seeking refuge in the, the U S embassy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a, a study done about how China was reacting in real time on Twitter, you know, first you know, filtering out his name. Second, um, then they would filter out this, you know, words like blind guy, mm-hmm. knowing that that was the code and, and the ability is kind of the cat and mouse or whack-a-mole aspect of how the, the Chinese netizens would create new names, create yeah. a new language, in other words, um, for these things that were now being filtered, and they were catching up to them and, and finally filtering it. And apparently, the weekend of this guy escaping, they happened to have Shawshank Redemption on state TV. Uh-huh. And so you know, what better uh, what better code word for someone escaping than Shawshank? And so they right. were actually filtering out Shawshank um, because of that. And I actually was telling the story to Tim Robbins, and he just loved that. <laughs> loved that concept that now Shawshank was, was considered, you know, um, somehow underground in, in China. <laughs> yeah, we've seen, I think we've seen that sort of thing happen quite a few times. I wanted the first things I ever wrote for the Berkman Center when I was an intern here um, was a blog post about Zambia, I think. The whole country of Zambia, uh, China was filtering search results on because of an economic deal that had gone somewhat belly up. Um, So for a while, you couldn't find any information about the entire country of Zambia if you were using Chinese search engines. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's so, I mean, such a random thing. I mean, such a small country and that that would, China would go be that embarrassed that they would go that far. Mm-hmm. Um, quite interesting. Now we only um, we're gonna take a short break, um, but when we come back, we're gonna talk more about the Internet Monitor. Particularly, we're gonna get into talking about the dashboard um, after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report only on Webmaster Radio FM. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit spyfu.com. That's S-P-Y-F-U.com. And start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on webmasterradio.fm. Jackie Cox Jones about Harvard Berkman Center's new internet monitor. We've kind of been talking about some of their research in, in China and um, as well as in uh, Iran. And so we talked a lot about China. What about Iran? What were you finding there? I mean, excuse me, not Iran, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so in Saudi Arabia, uh, as I mentioned before the break, one of the interesting things about Twitter is that it's a relatively unblocked and open platform. So we wanted to know kind of um, what people were talking about, what conversations they were able to have, if, if any, on this platform that weren't happening in other spaces, that weren't happening on other social media platforms, that weren't happening offline. Um, other social media platforms and offline media are fairly tightly controlled in, in Saudi Arabia. So Twitter is kind of interesting because the censors in Saudi Arabia can't actually block individual tweets or individual accounts without blocking the whole site. So it's kind of this unique space, and and perhaps as a result of that relative freedom, or perhaps for other reasons, uh, Saudi Arabia actually has a higher percentage of Twitter users than than any other country in the world, uh, which oh. is pretty amazing. Um, and nearly, I guess, nearly a third of all tweets in uh, Middle East and North Africa come from Saudi Arabia. So it's this huge space for discourse, for conversation, for all sorts of of information kind of flowing around, lots of different people using it. Um, and we kind of wanted to know what they were talking about and what different communities were represented in that space and whether they were able to have conversations that, that weren't happening offline. And what we found was that um, the three most commonly discussed things are religion, football, and politics, uh, which I think, you know, you might say that about the United States' Twitter space as well. You know, sports are popular, politics are popular. Um, there's a lot of debate on Saudi Arabian Twitter about 
conservative political views and religions. So um, one of the key themes we were seeing is a lot of discussion about what true sort of representations of Islam look like. And this is, I think, and I'm not, I don't want to speak too much about this because I'm not an expert in Saudi Arabian religion or politics. Sure. But, um, but that sort of debate mirrors a lot of offline political discussion as well and, and political divisions that the, exist in the country and have existed for quite some time. And so this conversation is just one that's able to sort of move on Twitter and happen perhaps a little more freely, a little more openly than it might happen offline. Um, we're also seeing things expressed on Twitter that aren't expressed in traditional media. So a lot of political dissidents, um, critics of the, the current monarchy, and supporters of various political causes, such as uh, the Syrian revolution, militancy in Iraq, we're seeing them express opinions and perspectives, sharing information that we're not finding in offline media or in traditional newspapers and television, that sort of thing. Um, one interesting finding is that unlike in China, where political dissidents who've made it on Twitter tend to use their real names and their faces and their profile pictures, we're not seeing that in Saudi Arabia. Most people who are voicing controversial opinions are doing so anonymously or pseudonymously, um, which I think shows that there's a little bit of a difference there between the two countries. Well, it also, I mean, so this week will be the anniversary of um, Raif Badawi getting the first 50 of his 1,000 lashes that he was sentenced for. Mm-hmm. And so they, I'm sure that that could be... Um, part of the reason why you see, you know, people using uh, pseudonyms or whatever um, in that in Saudi Arabia, just because you know the government has made clear there's a very high price to be paid. Absolutely, and just because the platform is accessible doesn't mean that it's not being monitored. True. So I think we're also seeing a lot of self censorship and people who are being very cautious about their approach to to speaking out online. So, so let's talk a little bit more about the dashboard. Um, you're able to monitor things such as the internet um, broadband access, the, the price, uh, you know, and as well as threats you, you, by various countries. What are some of the feedback you've been getting from people who have been using the dashboard? What are, what, what, how have they liked it and what, what have been the things they've been focusing on? So I think one of the um, most prominent pieces of feedback we've gotten so far is that people appreciate the flexibility of the tool. We have over 20 different sort of pre-built data visualization widgets from different sources that you can pull in, you can customize your country, um, choose your data source. But we also have a handful of widgets that you can enter your own information to. So if you have a chart that you want to share sort of in connection with a bunch of other information, you can pull that chart in. You can pull in RSS feeds, you can pull in images, you can pull in your own text. And so that all coupled together gives you a pretty flexible way to customize um, a dashboard or a set of dashboards for different uses. Some of the uses we're seeing are people who are sort of just, they want to know what, how does Rwanda stack up against Kenya or Uganda in terms of internet environments? Sure. So you can pull together sort of a country by country comparison of internet access, of threats, of network attacks, of broadband adoption, sort of all of these baseline indicators and get a sense of how two different or three different or four or as many as you want different countries compare. And you can do it really quickly without having to sort of go to all of these different websites, download all of these different spreadsheets, open them up, maybe in different applications, search through them for the country that you're interested in. Just all kind of plug and play. 
And then the end result is, is nice. You can share it. You can have other people edit it. It's not, again, sort of spreadsheet format. It's more visual and I think more immediately engaging in that way. So sure, people have I, said they've appreciated that. I, I just clicked on the um, country comparison element of the dashboard. And right off the bat, I have IM access, index, broadband costs, percent online in South Korea, Mexico, Pakistan, Mali. Um, so 84% in South Korea are online, 38% in Mexico, and 2% in Mali. Exactly. Um, so you can imagine if you are working in a policy office or you are putting together a research presentation, and this is the kind of information you need to use in your work, Rather than going to Google and Internet Monitor and ITU and Kaspersky and Tor to grab all of right. this information, you can just come to the dashboard and it's all right there for you. And it also looks nice so you can just throw it up on a screen or email it out to your colleagues or your uh, fellow students um, without having to sort of deal with a bunch of different files. It's interesting. I'm, I'm looking at the dashboard for uh, media topics Mm-hmm. And I, I guess the, the one issue is that you have the media cloud and the information there, but it's it's in the native language. So unless you understand the language, um, you, you can't necessarily get a, get a, a bird's eye view of those countries. I guess. Yeah, that's uh, the the sources for media cloud are actually online media in those countries, those countries so and so it is native are, language. Yeah. We do have um, one of our stellar interns this semester. Uh, Mira McCammon, she wrote a blog post in the last, I think, six weeks or so about how to use the dashboard sort of coupled with Wikipedia, for example. We have a widget that shows the most recent Wikipedia edits in a bunch of different languages. And she kind of took that on as a challenge and delved into that and using Wikipedia kind of clicked on different articles. And then because Wikipedia lets you switch between languages, she could see, for example, that I think I think it was Pride and Prejudice was being edited in Iran, in Persian, um, so she has a blog post up there that kind of handles that issue of if you don't speak a language, but you still want to know what's happening in a country. That's how interesting. You can I think I saw, I saw that, yes. And um, so in terms of this moving forward, you know, what, what is next for the dashboard? Right. So when we came out in September, our goal was to kind of publish a proof of concept, show that the widget concept works show that it's useful, and then also gather a lot of feedback on what additional data sources would be helpful to different people who are using this site, and also what additional features. So we're, we're continuing active development on this. We're not done. Um, the launch was just the first in what we hope will be a series of improved versions of the dashboard. Um, by the end of this month, we're hoping to have not only a handful of additional data sources, but also a couple of new, fairly powerful widgets that let you compare data sources within the same widget. So you can map internet penetration against prices, for example, Mm. Um, which you can do now sort of side by side, but we think this will be a much faster and easier way to kind of dig into the data and start finding connections and correlations. And and also, are you getting new data sources or other companies stepping up saying, hey, feel free to use, put put me in there or... Yeah, absolutely. We've had a lot of interest. We actually just, um, towards the end of September, we just added new information on uh, mobile connections, prepaid connections, and 2G and 3G connections. That's from GSMA Intelligence. That wasn't something that we had in there at launch, but after we launched, we had some great conversations with them, and they offered us this new data. Um, at, towards the end of this month, we're coming out with a new widget from uh, the Ranking Digital Rights Index, which looks at sort of 
corporate accountability in the online space, both social media companies and also telecommunications companies. Um, so we'll have a couple of widgets that dig into that data. And we're continually sort of working with new data partners, talking about new possibilities. We're interested in suggestions for new data sources, as well as in talking to people who have data who'd like to share it or, or get a wider audience for that data. I'm, I'm curious, corporate accountability in the online space, what's an example of that? Um, so Ranking Digital Rights is a project that's been sort of working over the past year and change to look at when you interact with a company, sort of how how do their disclosed policies, commitments, practices, how do those affect your freedom of expression and privacy? Mm. So they're looking at... Um, sort of how transparent a company is in terms of the practices they have that might affect users' rights. And they've collected just a wealth of data about that um, through some fairly intense research and released this new corporate accountability index that came out towards the end of last year. And and so in terms of the dashboard and, and the monitor, what excites you most about it? I think uh, selfishly in my own research, I'm finding it really helpful because I am one of those people who used to kind of open up 15 tabs in my browser and go to 15 different sources. And I knew what information I needed, but it would take me half a day or more right. to kind of pull it all, open it up. Uh, my computer is a little bit older than I would like it to be. So that takes even longer. Um, and now with the dashboard, I can throw together, you know, if my boss asks me for some information about Kenya or about Mali or about Pakistan, I can just kind of throw that together really quickly and shoot out a link. Um, so that for me is really fun. I also am finding some of the more um, unexpected uses really exciting. So like I said, we've tried really hard to build in flexibility to make this a generative platform where people can take it in directions that we might hope for but not expect or might not even hope for because we don't know. We can't imagine what they might be. Right. And we're seeing that happen. There's um, someone in, in the community of Chester, England, who runs a community wiki that pulls in news sources and media about the community, um, restaurant reviews, photos, that sort of thing. And he's actually moved his entire operation onto the dashboard which I think is not uh, precisely one of the, the end uses we had anticipated, but I think is really interesting and shows, I think, how hungry people are for this. So the dashboard tool. can become a platform in itself? Yeah, I think you can, with our sort of RSS feed widgets and with our ability to embed images and texts and different charts, you can pull in um, a lot of different things. We're really focused on making sure the dashboard's interoperable with technology that already exists, like RSS feeds. Um, or like existing sort of Google charts or Google maps or that right. sort of thing. So you can embed all of those things. Um, so, I mean, I think our obvious drive is about internet data and about information about the way the internet's being used in different places. But theoretically, you can kind of take that and springboard off into a bunch of different directions. Very interesting. And it's all creative commons, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the code actually is all open source. So you can find the entire dashboard code on GitHub. And if you're interested in building widgets, there's documentation on GitHub uh, about how to do that, um, how to submit data. We're really hoping for a collaborative effort here. Now at Berkman, you, you do more than just the Internet Monitor. You're also involved with um, some of the accountability and transparency aspects of the ICANN. Uh, yeah, that was a project that we concluded... I think it's been a few years uh, ago now. We were um, I can we were working with ICANN to do a review of their sort of internal transparency and accountability processes, as well as those processes in terms of how they affected the public community. Um, so I was helping with some of the research on that. 
And but that are you still doing that? Because right now there's there's some debate about you know some of the recent ICANN um, proposals in terms of improving its transparency and accountability. Right. That um that project has concluded. So I personally haven't kept up on that space probably as much as I should be, unfortunately. That's okay. There's no test. <laughs> <laughs> But and then the um, the Open Net Initiative, what, what that's something else you work on. What is that? Yeah, so the Open Net Initiative um, that has also come to an end. But actually, it's a great question because we are transitioning um, into a sort of complementary project to Internet Matter. The sort of gist behind all of this work is to document internet censorship and internet filtering uh, wherever it's happening online. So. Uh, the Open Net Initiative existed for, I think, about 12 years, and its method was to put together lists of websites, um, both sort of worldwide and then in individual countries that we suspected might be filtered in a bunch of different categories. So political websites, social websites, gambling websites. Um, and then we would test those sites using software that we had developed with our partners at Citizen Lab and a couple of other institutions and kind of gather all of this data and determine, you know, political filtering in Iran right now is about a level three out of four. Um, and that research is wonderful. It's also incredibly human resource intensive because the software that we were building needed to be used by human volunteers in country. So what the new internet monitor effort is doing, and more on this will come out probably in the next three to six months, is we're building a more automated way to test internet censorship. So we're working with a team of developers, um, that is looking at proxy servers, looking at Chrome plugins, looking at servers uh, in different countries that we're gaining access to through different partners and ways to build a system that will just run these tests regularly rather than needing to find human volunteers to run software for us. And then we can gather that data. And for example, the end user could come to our website and say, I want to know if Twitter's blocked in Turkey today. And we could just give you a very fast and reliable answer to that question. I, I can see the connection between the two. Mm-hmm. And um, Jillian York, who was also on the show, I believe she was involved in that project when she was at... She was, yes. She and I worked very closely together for a couple of years here at the Berkman Center. Yes, and now she's at EFF, Electronic mm-hmm. Frontier Foundation. But um, yes, so we had her on the show in 2011, um, right, right during the dawn of Arab Spring. Right. And just before... Mubarak felt that it was overthrown. So um, definitely heady, heady times indeed. Yeah. <laughs> now, there's one thing I have to ask you about. I saw in your 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 um, in your personal website that you you had a certain interaction with a, a famous world leader. Um, I did. And he actually said that you reminded him of his granddaughter. He um, did. <laughs> could you tell us about the world leader and how that came about? Sure. So, uh, so I think I mentioned at the very beginning of the show that I studied Russian in college. I was a Slavic languages and literatures major, and I was also president of the University of Kansas Russian Club. So as part of my uh, duties for that organization, I took a group of students to see Gorbachev speak at uh, Kansas State University. I guess uh, I probably shouldn't confirm this 100%, but my understanding was that he had an old chess buddy who was hanging out in Manhattan, Kansas, who somehow arranged for him to come speak. Um, so we gave and a at talk. At this point in time, is he still the, the in power, or is this after? No, this would have been in probably two thousand and four, two thousand five. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he was just kind of giving a, a general presentation about the future of Russian politics um, and kind of what he had learned from his experience. But afterwards, he was scheduled to go to a pretty fancy reception, which we as students were not invited to. Um, 
but we so wanted to talk to him as Russian students that we kind of hung out outside of the building just to see if he would come out. And luck was in our favor. And he kind of sped his way through the reception, shook the hands he needed to shake. And then we caught him on his way out and just introduced ourselves. And uh, he said hello. And then he looked at me and told me that he thought I looked like his granddaughter. And then he left. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, it was kind of bizarre. Um, but one of my, I think, favorite top 10 life moments, probably. Um, I remember when he came to Washington for the first time. And it was during the height of the Cold War. He was coming, obviously, to for some a summit with President Reagan. So there, that dates it. Um, <laughs> just after the Civil War, you know, that far back. And, and um, but he was kind of a rock star in the U.S. at that time, and he actually got out of his limo and shook hands. Um, in Farragut Square in downtown Washington and just brought traffic to a halt. Mm -hmm. And uh, definitely an interesting figure, Um, I think underrated, I think, for his contributions. Um, You know, clearly he maybe made a a gamble on, uh, I think the Chinese uh, feel they made the better choice in choosing um, political liberation over economic liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, that, that's quite thrilling that he's such a, an important figure in history, and to have had that interaction—that's really amazing. Yeah, it was kind of uh, bizarre and strange, but also pretty fun. And so um, we only have a few minutes left, and we're going to take a break. But if people want to learn more about the Internet Monitor, um, you know, where should they go, and where can they find out more about what you're up to? So our website is thenetmonitor.org, and that has both links to dashboard, tutorial videos, information on our research, a pretty active blog. Um, I think that's the best sort of one-stop shop for information about the Internet Monitor. Great. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, um, we're going to have some news updates. But I want to thank um, Rebecca for joining us on this debut of our sixth season. Definitely check out the Monitor. Um, It's useful information in real time, and I think that's, that's the That's the great value of it. So um, thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Thanks so much. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Celebrating the best in online advertising, the Web Marketing Association presents the 14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your banner ads, email ads, rich media, online newsletters, websites, and social media campaigns now by going to iacaward.org. Deadline for entries is February 15th, 2016. All winners will have their entry highlighted on the Internet Advertising Competition website, as well as receive a handsome trophy to display or a personalized certificate of achievement. Be honored among your online advertising peers by submitting your entry into the Web Marketing Association's 14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your entry today at iacaward.org. That's iacaward.org. 
Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contests and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and I want to thank Rebecca for a great discussion about the uh, what the Berkman Center is up to and the, their whole Internet Monitor dashboard. Um, we wanted to give you some news updates and on a couple of matters, but one... Um, in December, we had a show where we had Rafa Fernandez de Castro um, from Fusion Media talk about his work in covering what was going on in Mexico with the cartels and um, how people were using online tools to um, and big data to kind of tell the story of what was going on in terms of the cartels and, and interaction with government in Mexico. And um, it and having just come back from Mexico where you, the, the scars or the, the anger over the, the 43 um, disappeared students um, was still very present, it, it really made me think. And it's hard to imagine how this type of issue would be covered here in the U.S. if that was in Canada. Anyway, the fact that um, this these things can go on in Mexico without really getting much broad coverage in Mexico and excuse me within the U.S. media it just kind of struck me and so it actually led me um, just before the new year to write a post in in the Huffington Post about what was going on in Mexico. There's currently a battle over um, the um, two of the presidential candidates, Marco Rubio and, and um, Ted Cruz. Um, both in the U.S. Senate, have put a hold on the nomination of the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, um, this, despite bipartisan support. And um, and this is our third largest trading partner. Um, but they put a hold over you know, unhappiness with uh, President Obama's liberalization of policies towards Cuba. And so I, I wrote about that and about um, the need for U.S. involvement and engagement in Mexico at this time and, and not having an ambassador there at a time when, you know, the ambassador before he left was pushing Mexico to take uh, to, to address um, what was going on in Mexico and address these, you know, the murders of reporters and um, make sure that this, this cycle of impunity doesn't continue. And um, but and then since since that article came out uh, right after New Year's, we had the swearing in of a new um, mayor in the town of uh, let me get the town name so I say it right. <laughs> I don't want to butcher it, but in, in a town just um, just off from Mexico City, and um, the mayor was killed within 24 hours of being sworn in. And uh, just a, a real tragedy. And she had campaigned 
on being a reformer or not being, you know, a, a part of the whole cycle of you know, being in bed with the cartels. And um, so it just raised a whole debate about what was going on and uh, just further highlights the need for engagement there in Mexico. And so, um, yes, the, the mayor was, um, her name was Mayor Gisela Mota Ocampo, and she was the, the mayor of the town of Temexco. And uh, so that's a new development there. So I think it's something we're going to be monitoring and we'll keep you update. But, um, you know, the fact that something like this can happen and, and not get widespread coverage in the U.S. is unfortunate. But um, in addition, we do have some other news, right? Next week, the um, Federal Trade Commission is going to have um, yet another conference on privacy. Um, they've announced that on January 14th, they will have um, PrivacyCon, which is um, kind of a, a different type of, of conference than what they've done in the past. Is They're bringing together, quote, a diverse group of stakeholders, including white hat researchers, academics, industry representatives, consumer advocates, and government regulators to discuss the latest research and trends related to consumer privacy and data security. The FTC called for research to be presented at the conference, and which it will be. The agenda has been released, and it will be streamed live um, on the air, live from the FTC conference center. They've also announced the another um, Start with Security conference. We, we talked about that in the fall. They had a conference so far. They have one in, in San Francisco, um, and then a, a second one in Austin for explaining the importance of cybersecurity to startups. And um, so the next one is going to be February 9th at the University of Washington School of Law in Seattle. Um, other developments we wanted to highlight um, for you in the time we have in the, the budget, in the $1.1 million budget um, that was signed by President Obama that kept everything running um, just before the holidays included um, the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act. And so, so a bill that would allow um, private the private sector to share information with the government about cybersecurity threats and for the government to in turn share that data with the private sector. Um, so that, that has been passed. We will be talking more about that um, in a future show, but we wanted to highlight that fact. Also in the um, – in our Heroes and Zeros show, uh, one of the um, zeros we talked about, or uh, was um, I think um, Brenda called the, um, the drone douchebags, and uh, there was a famous incident of the the guy who was flying his drone relatively low over a Texas a Kentucky home, and the the guy did not appreciate it, especially since his daughter was laying out in her bathing suit, and he shot the drone. Well, just this week, um, the, the droner has filed for um, a suit in, for a declaration that he was not trespassing and for damage for the $1,500 in um, damages for the destruction of the drone. So we will wait to see how that goes. Um, the, um, the man sued, William Meredith, actually has on his Facebook page, uh, his cover is, not only did I do it, but I meant to do it and I'd do it again. 
Um, he, he calls himself the drone slayer. <laughs> so that would be interesting to see how that proceeds. We, we may be covering that in the future. Um, we mentioned um, Ra- um, Raf Badawi. Um, the, the anniversary of his um, first set of um, lashes is coming up. But more importantly, he's been moved to a more remote prison and has been on a hunger, hunger stripe since around the holidays, and his health is deteriorating. So we are very concerned and uh, hope you know, people continue to put pressure on the Saudi government um, to address this human rights abuse. And, um, and finally, there's a lot of controversy right now. There's a lot of discussion about guns. And uh, this is also the anniversary coming up of the the shooting of Gabby Giffords in Tucson, and then a whole bunch of other people who um, who died in the, in that tragedy. And uh, you may recall, right before Gabby Giffords um, was shot, there was a number of political ads that actually featured images of with targets and you know, gun targets on her. And so, um, two two congresswomen come out with a, a bill that will somehow limit um, the sale of bullets. And the NRA has responded with two uh, an ad that has a Polaroid of the in, in their Twitter account. They released this ad that has a a Polaroid of each congressman with bullets laying around them, and it, it's somewhat of a, a threatening and intimidating photo. And completely inappropriate, considering the the timing is just days before the fifth anniversary of Gabby Giffords shooting, and uh, it's they're getting a lot of flack for this really reprehensible ad. But um, by the way, Bennett, did you notice uh, last night she was front or yesterday she was front row for uh, President Obama's gun control speech? I did not. I, I assumed I didn't. I haven't. I didn't see the video yet. I assumed yeah, she would he be mentioned to her. He mentioned out publicly to her and. Uh, she looks like she's doing. Uh, she's re- recovered quite well after what happened. Didn't mention five years ago. That was one of the main things he mentioned during his gun control speech was going back to that date and just remembering what happened as one of the first one of those real mass shootings that really was impacting during his presidency. Well, it was. I mean, you know, she was a strong supporter, and you know, even she was well liked on both sides of the aisle. And you know, for me, it's hard. I mean, she's a friend. And uh, I, I still remember I was actually flying back from Asia and I had a stopover in uh, in Tokyo and I just happened – I was going to spend the day in Tokyo and I happened to um, just take a shower and, and go into United Lounge to get breakfast and I saw that. It said, you know, Congresswoman shot and I knew right away it was her and uh, it was just a very upsetting day and um, – you know, I know Mark, and it's just very sad. Um, and I honestly think had she not been shot, she could have been elected to the Senate. Um, I think she'd be there now, and who knows? You know, she could have been a future president. But um, you know, I think she still has a role to play in, in public policy. And her and Mark have done an admirable job in in trying to raise awareness. And uh, but it, you know, it, it was just a very sad day, and I'm sure Obama remembers it well. Um, so. We will um, definitely be keeping you up to date as uh, more on these on these online developments and other developments coming up. Brasco, who do we have for next week? Call me off guard now. I got to go back and look. Uh, give me about a minute. I'll be able to come tell you. Okay, I apologize for that. But so we're going to be covering these, and we want to thank you for joining us um, for a debut show for our sixth season. And um, 
I actually looked up what is the the sixth anniversary for weddings. You know, whether it's the you know the first anniversary is the paper, and this is the candy anniversary. So if you're listening, readers, please go out and have a um, have some candy on us, but not exactly. We're we're not really it's not in the budget, but but please enjoy. <laughs> Some candy uh, in 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 that spirit, and um, so next week uh, we actually have Lee Arnetta is going to join us um, to talk about uh, Media.net's battles over whether you can have copyright protection for CSS style sheet formatting, um, and we're going to have a number of issues we'll be talking about as time goes on, and uh, so definitely thank you for joining us today and from soggy Southern California here. This is Bennett Kelly. Uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of Cyberlaw and Business Report. Thank you for joining us today. Till then, be safe, be dry, and um, thanks for joining us again. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.